Hey listeners, I'm your host, Sam Randall, and this is Season 2 of Crime De La Crime Podcast. I've been working on this case for quite some time now, and I wasn't sure how I wanted to tell this story. It all started when I came across one little girl's case from 1987, and this quickly became one of the deepest rabbit holes I've ever gone into when researching a missing persons case. Just like any normal person, missing children hit me in a different way. So when I started researching a disappearance that took place in Nebraska, I never could have prepared for the web of disappearances and murders that were to come with it. So buckle up and let me tell you the story of Jillian D. Cutshaw. Jillian Cutshaw was born on February 19, 1978, to parents Joyce and Roger Cutshaw. It was reported that Joyce and Roger divorced in 1985, and Jillian lived with her mother and older brother Jeff in Great Bend, Kansas. At this time, Jillian's father and stepmother were living in Norfolk, Nebraska. It was reported by the Norfolk Daily News that Jillian loved reading, writing, and animals, especially horses. Just like most kids, she always wanted a pet of her own and was said to be a very intelligent child. She earned mostly A's in school and by all accounts was a great student. She loved spending time with her friends and family, and at the time of her disappearance, she was very close with her mom, dad, and brother. Don't read too much into the fact that I didn't mention her stepmother, because there's really not much information about her out there, but there was never any negative information about their relationship either. It was reported that Jillian and her brother had been staying at Roger's apartment with him and their stepmother because it was still summer break. They lived at the McNeely apartment complex in Norfolk, Nebraska, and Jillian's brother Jeff decided to go back home to their moms, but Jillian wanted to stay with her dad a little bit longer. Joyce did note that Jillian didn't feel comfortable staying at Roger's apartment by herself because apparently it wasn't located in a great area and was reportedly noisy and filled with transients. Because of this, Jillian would get up at 6 a.m., do any chores she needed to get done that morning, and then walk to her babysitter's house just a few blocks away. August 13, 1987 was no different. That morning, nine-year-old Jillian got up, put on a pair of blue jeans and a purple shirt, and left her dad's apartment on South 4th Street to head to the babysitter's, which was located on South 8th Street. Her babysitter's name at the time was Michelle Beacom, and it was reported that Michelle left a key to her place in the mailbox for the children she babysat for. On this morning, Michelle was in the apartment in the rear of the house taking care of her neighbor's children. Sources stated that Jillian would normally sit on Michelle's front stoop until someone woke up inside. People later wondered if Jillian had forgotten that Michelle would be around back that day or about the key in the mailbox, because witnesses recalled seeing her sitting on the front steps of the house tying her shoes around 6.30 a.m. This is the last time anyone would ever see Jillian. 
Jillian never went inside Michelle's house. And this is so strange because we know she made it to the front porch. Her mother, Joyce, said that Jillian had been repeatedly warned about talking to strangers. Regardless of these warnings, she said that Jillian, quote, just loved people. She trusted them. She always found something good in everybody, even if they weren't good, end quote. When Jillian's stepmother went to pick her up after work around 3 p.m., that was when she was told that Michelle had never seen Jillian that day. As the evening went by and she still never came home, that was when Roger called the police at 6.05 p.m. to report her missing. Police spoke to Michelle and the boyfriend that was living with her at the time, and he stated he had left for work at 7.30 a.m. that morning. He stated that she was not sitting on the porch when he left, so even though we know Jillian made it there, no one in the actual residence ever saw or spoke to her before she disappeared. An extensive search was quickly conducted by local and state police as well as the FBI. Thousands of posters flooded the entire country with Jillian's picture all over them. According to the Los Angeles Times, there were roadblocks set up, door-to-door searches, and hundreds of interviews conducted. Within the first four days of her disappearance, over 150 people had worked on her case, and many police officers pulled 16- to 18-hour shifts following any leads that came in. Police ruled out nothing, including the possibility that Jillian had run away, and even to the extent where police questioned Joyce herself. Both of these possibilities were quickly ruled out because there was no evidence whatsoever to point to either of these theories. Roger and Michelle Beacom's neighborhoods were searched several times, but no trace or evidence of Jillian was found. Authorities quickly concluded that Jillian was most likely abducted by a non-family member. And just a quick true crime fact for everyone, less than 1% of missing children are abducted by strangers. This is also why the stranger danger push gets so much criticism today. One of the biggest issues is children being taught that only the random, creepy stranger in the van will abduct them, when today we know from statistics that children are typically abducted by someone they know and trust. Joyce began the crusade to find Jillian immediately after finding out she was missing. She took part in every search and even moved to Norfolk to be close to the investigation. It was reported that for months after Jillian disappeared, Joyce would go to the Norfolk Police Department every single morning at 10 a.m. and ask for any updates surrounding the case. She hired a private investigator who specialized in missing children cases and accepted almost every single interview request from local news stations, national newspapers, and multiple television and radio stations. Joyce did everything in her power to keep Jillian's face in the media spotlight, hoping that it would help find her and bring her home. For the first year, she even wrote Jillian letters. Quote, There is a part of me that is gone. I hope you are doing okay, sweet pea. I know you feel inside how special you are to me. I could never ask for a better daughter than the one I'm blessed with. If I can't find you soon, I'm afraid I'll never see you again. End quote. On September 1st, 1987, less than one month after Jillian disappeared, Police received a tip from a man who had stated he had seen a child matching Jillian's description at a truck stop near Omaha, Nebraska. 
The witness told police he recognized Jillian because of the way her hair was cut at the time of her abduction. He said nothing seemed suspicious when he saw her, just that the resemblance was too close for him not to report it. The unidentified girl was seen riding in one of two vehicles with Texas license plates traveling together heading east on Interstate 80. This girl and these vehicles were never located and this sighting was never positively confirmed. As the months went by, no evidence was ever recovered during the search efforts until November 7, 1987. A pheasant hunter and his two sons were walking through the Wood Duck Wildlife Area southwest of Stanton, Nebraska, which is about 10 miles from Norfolk, when they stumbled upon a pile of children's clothing. This discovery took place in the early morning hours of the day, but for some unknown reason, the hunters didn't report the discovery until later that afternoon. As far as I could tell, these guys were never considered suspects, so don't get locked onto this detail. It was clear to police that the clothing found had been exposed to the elements for some time, and after further testing, it was positively identified to be the clothing Jillian was wearing when she disappeared. Joyce was adamant about wanting to see the items that had been recovered, but police initially refused this request. When she was finally able to see the items, she also positively identified all of them as belonging to Jillian. This was the first and only clue that had been found up to this point. After this discovery, investigators and volunteers searched this 667-acre piece of land, which also included 71 acres of marshland. Officers from the Stanton County Sheriff's Office, the Madison County Sheriff's Office, the Norfolk Police Department, the Nebraska State Patrol, along with FBI agents, closed off the entire area and searched for Jillian for the next five days straight. Sadly, nothing else was found in this area. Investigators stated that they believe whoever abducted Jillian was a local to the area and knew that area well, mainly because the chances of someone just stumbling upon that area where Jillian's clothing was found was very unlikely. Joyce truly thought that Jillian would be found within the first week, and then months began to go by. Quote, After the third month, I emotionally and mentally was telling myself that if we work hard enough, we'll have her back in a year. End quote. A year quickly went by, and still there was no trace of Jillian anywhere. There have been a few suspects in Jillian's case, and this is where the story starts to get a little crazy. In January of 1988, the name of the first possible suspect was finally released, William Henry Redmond. William was a convicted child molester who hid from police for 37 years and has a long criminal history of abusing young girls. Not much is known about his early life, but he had previously been charged for attacking and sexually assaulting two young girls in 1935 in Lancaster, Ohio. This was when he was arrested for the first time, and his sentence included time in the Ohio State Reformatory and the Ohio State Psychiatric Hospital. I couldn't find exactly how long he spent there, but we know it wasn't long because he was arrested in 1938 for the attempted rape and assault of a young girl in Conneaut, Ohio, 
and again in 1949 for a sexual assault that took place in Florida. Even though William was a repeat offender, he never served much jail time for any of these attacks. As I was researching this case, William's name came up in multiple missing and murdered children cases, so even though some of them could never be proven, all of their stories deserve to be shared. So let's start from the beginning. William is considered a suspect in the 1949 murder of 11-year-old Joanne Lynn from Hemlock, New York. Joanne was last seen leaving her home at 8 a.m. on September 19, 1949 to walk to school. When she never arrived home that afternoon, she was immediately reported missing. It was assumed she had been abducted because two witnesses came forward, stating that they had seen a girl matching her description walking toward a 1930-1940 gray sedan with Pennsylvania license plates. On September 24, 1949, only five days after Joanne disappeared, her body was discovered lying face down in a ditch by 14-year-old Norma Marsden. The area her body was found was located only a few miles away from Hemlock and 200 yards off Route 15A. It was reported she was missing her sweater and underwear and had been killed by two gunshot wounds, one to her forehead that also pierced her arm as she was trying to protect her face, and the second bullet entered her left breast and came out from her back. After further testing, it was found that a German Luger semi-automatic pistol had been used to kill her, and both bullets were collected at the scene as evidence. It also appeared that whoever killed her had also attempted to rape her, but didn't end up being able to follow through with it for a reason that is still unknown to this day. One thing we know for certain is that scrapings found under her fingernails proved she had fought her attacker hard. William Redman was a suspect in Joanne's murder from day one. At this time, he was working as a truck driver, as well as a Ferris wheel operator for the Hemlock Fair and Carnival that was taking place only six miles away from where her body was found. To this day, no one has ever been officially charged for the murder of Joanne Lynn, and her case remains unsolved. On April 25, 1951, Eight-year-old Jane Marie Altoff was found murdered inside an abandoned pickup truck on the grounds of a carnival in Trainer, Pennsylvania. Jane had gone to the carnival with her two brothers, but had wandered off by herself and was reported missing just a few hours before she was found. She had been strangled to death, but there was no sign of sexual assault. Chief County Detective Fred Jack stated, quote, we believe that she was enticed into the truck and killed when she screamed or started to scream for help, end quote. The truck Jane was found in was covered with William's fingerprints, and in January of 1952, a warrant was issued for his arrest so police could question him. However, by this time, William had completely disappeared and fallen off the radar. It was also noted by the Resource Center for Cold Case Missing Children that investigators explored the possibility that William was involved in the abduction of Beverly Potts from Cleveland, Ohio, on August 24, 1951. She had ridden her bicycle to an annual summer festival located less than a mile from her home with one of her friends. 
Beverly's mother had previously forbidden her from going to this park after she had returned home late just a few days before the festival. Her mother made an exception for this festival event, and it was stated that Beverly and her friend arrived to the park just after 7 p.m. It was noted that the two had left their bikes at the park and returned home for a short time before heading back to the festival around 8 p.m. Beverly's mom had given her permission to stay until the end of the festival that evening, but her friend left at 8.40 p.m. because she had to be home before dark. Her friend stated she last saw Beverly standing in front of a woman who had her hand on Beverly's shoulder while watching a show. Beverly was last seen around 9.30 p.m. when the festival ended. A 13-year-old boy that knew Beverly said he last saw her walking across the park headed in the direction of her home. When she never arrived home, her parents reported her missing at 10.30 p.m. To this day, Beverly has never been found. The next disappearance took place on July 16, 1952, when 10-year-old Constance Smith, also known as Connie, went missing from Salisbury, Connecticut. She was attending a summer camp known at the time as Camp Sloan and apparently had gotten in a confrontation with one of the other girls who it was reported had been bullying her. When she went to the nurse with a bloody nose and a cut lip, they gave her an ice pack to take with her to use while the spots healed. On the day she disappeared, she told her tentmates that she was skipping breakfast to go return the ice pack to the camp infirmary and that she would be back when she was finished. Connie never made it to the infirmary. The next time she was reportedly seen was when a camp counselor noticed her walking towards Indian Mountain Road, and others also claimed to have seen her picking flowers in the area. There was also a report of her knocking on a private homeowner's door and asking for directions to Lakeville, Connecticut. This was the last time Connie was ever seen, and she is still missing to this day. Next, we have Barbara Gotza a seven-year-old girl who disappeared on March 24, 1955 in Detroit, Michigan after leaving her home to walk to school. When Barbara never came home for lunch, her mom called the school and was told Barbara had never shown up for school that day. Her mom immediately reported her missing and police issued a missing persons bulletin for her. Her father, Frank, left work early to join other friends and family in the searches around the neighborhoods and around the school. As it grew darker, more and more police were sent out to look for Barbara, and by the next day, thousands of concerned locals were turning the city upside down after being told to, quote, knock on every door, look under every car, check everywhere a little girl could possibly be, end quote. Frank made a television appearance begging for her safe return, and it was reported that around 3,000 Boy Scouts combed a 90-square-mile area. On March 31st, just one week later, one of the largest searches to ever take place in Detroit came to an end. A railroad worker found Barbara's body wrapped inside an army blanket at a dump site just 25 miles from her home. She had been raped, strangled, stabbed, and discarded like trash. It was reported that the city of Detroit, including the mayor, were devastated by the news. Evidence was found that showed the rape and murder had occurred within two to four hours of her abduction and that both took place inside a clean car or a clean room. Three pieces of evidence were collected where her body was found, 
including the blood-stained army blanket, footprints made by large shoes, and fresh tire tracks leading from as far as 50 feet away from her body. Police spoke to all kinds of witnesses, each with a different account of events, as well as suspects like William Henry Redmond. Despite all these efforts, Barbara's murder remains unsolved to this day. Next, I want to tell you about Maria Ridolf. Maria was only seven years old when she was abducted near her home on December 3, 1957 in Sycamore, Illinois. When it started to flurry that evening, Maria went outside with her friend Kathy to play. Kathy did an interview with CBS News in June of 2017 and stated that a man had approached them at some point while they were playing outside. Quote, he stopped to talk to us, told us that his name was Johnny. Maria took the piggyback ride and he went maybe 20 feet away with her and then came back, asked if we liked dolls, and Maria went home to get a doll. She went home and brought her doll back and I said I was going to go home and get my mittens. I was cold. I left both of them standing there on the corner and when I got back, they were gone. No sign of her doll, no sign of her, no sign of anybody. End quote. Maria's brother Chuck followed this by saying, quote, Kathy came to the door and asked if Maria was there. I didn't think anything of it. I just said, no, she's still outside. It was a few minutes later she came back saying, I can't find Maria, end quote. After Chuck went outside and couldn't locate Maria either, he told his parents and they contacted the police. No one knows exactly what time Maria was abducted, but two of the neighbors reported hearing a scream around 7 p.m. Maria's doll was later found in an alley not far away from where she disappeared. Local police and the FBI conducted a massive search along with countless volunteers knocking on doors and setting up roadblocks. Nothing other than the doll she had been carrying was ever found during these searches. Five months later, on April 26, 1958, Maria's body was found partially clothed by a farmer and his wife 90 miles away near Galena, Illinois. Because her body was found inside state lines, the FBI handed the case to the Illinois State Police and the case quickly went cold. And then there was Jillian Cutshaw who disappeared on August 13, 1987. In 1985, a Pennsylvania state trooper named Malcolm Murphy reopened Jane Althoff's case. He was finally able to track down William using computerized vehicle registrations and apprehended him in January of 1988. William had been on the run and living under the radar for 37 years at this point and he was immediately transported to Pennsylvania where he was charged with nine offenses relating to Jane, including criminal homicide, murder, involuntary manslaughter, kidnapping, simple assault, aggravated assault, unlawful restraint, indecent assault, and endangering the welfare of children. Police interrogated him for 14 hours, and William said that he had choked Jane to stop her from bothering him about taking additional rides on the Ferris wheel he was overseeing that day. After his arrest, William was publicly named a suspect in the abduction and murders of several other girls, including Joanne Lynn. New York investigator Robert Montgomery wrote in an affidavit filed in August of 1991 
that his agency's crime lab had established a DNA profile of the killer from samples found on Joanne's clothing. Quote, Redmond worked before and after Joanne Lynn's death as a Ferris wheel operator and a truck driver in various traveling carnivals. At the time of her death, the Hemlock Fair and Carnival was in progress six miles south of where her body was found. End quote. As far as I know, all the evidence was circumstantial, and William was never charged in her abduction and murder. Joanne's murder remains unsolved to this day. When it came to Beverly Potts, William was questioned by police about her after he was arrested in 1988, but he flat out refused to say anything about Beverly or the case. Investigator Robert Montgomery stated, quote, at that time, he indicated to police that he would provide information relevant to the Cleveland, Ohio case after speaking to his Pennsylvania attorney. However, the interview was not continued, end quote. Once again, all the evidence against William was circumstantial, so he was never able to be charged or proven to be involved in her disappearance. Beverly has never been found and foul play is suspected in her disappearance. William was also questioned about the disappearance of Connie Smith, and he agreed to take a polygraph test. If you've ever listened to any of my older episodes, you know I don't trust polygraphs. But William did pass, and investigators could never determine whether he had been in the Connecticut area at the time Connie vanished or not. So once again, it could not be proven that William was there or involved, and Connie has also never been found. District Court Judge George Page ordered that William be detained in a county jail without bond and scheduled a preliminary hearing regarding the charges for the murder of Jane for February 8, 1989. He ended up being released on a $1 bond shortly after this because he was ruled to be a non-threat due to his age and health issues. The beginning of the trial ended up getting delayed when the lead detective refused to tell William's attorney the name of his confidential informant, so the judge ruled that he was in contempt of court. William Redmond died awaiting trial at the age of 69 on Thursday, January 2, 1992, from acute emphysema and heart complications. Because of this, the charges in Jane's case were dropped. In 1996, 13 pages of details surrounding the murder of Barbara were sent to the FBI's Violent Criminal Apprehension System, also known as VICAP, and this was when William Redmond's name came up surrounding her abduction and murder. Investigators could never positively confirm William's whereabouts at the time the murder took place, but they did find that there was an individual named William Henry Redmond working for a railroad in New Mexico at the time she was murdered. As far as I know, they could never confirm 100% that this was the William Redmond they were looking for. Barbara's murder remains unsolved to this day. In 1997, Sycamore Police Lieutenant Patrick Soler closed Maria Ridolph's case after naming William Redmond as the man who had most likely abducted and murdered her. He claimed that William had admitted to a fellow inmate that he had committed a crime that matched the description of Maria's abduction and murder. According to Lieutenant Soler, William regularly traveled close to the location where Maria's body was found while he was employed as a truck driver in the area at the time. But even with all this, 
Soler admitted that if William were still alive, it would be extremely difficult to convict him in Maria's case because, once again, all the evidence was circumstantial. And this is why he declared Maria's case officially, quote, closed but not solved, end quote. This left an open opportunity that a different suspect could be identified in the future. And that's exactly what happened. In September of 2012, Jack McCullough was found guilty of Maria's kidnapping and murder. However, years later, the DeKalb County State's District Attorney stated in March of 2016 that a post-conviction analysis of the evidence proved that Jack McCullough could not have been present at the scene at the time Maria was abducted. Jack was officially released from prison on April 15, 2016, and a few days later, on April 22nd, all accusations against him were dropped regarding Maria's case. The county circuit court ruled Jack officially not guilty of the felony on April 12, 2017. A judge ruled that any testimony surrounding William Redmond was not allowed because he was deemed to have not been a plausible suspect when Jack McCullough was prosecuted in Maria's case. Maria's murder remains unsolved and her killer unidentified. William was a suspect in Jillian Cutshaw's disappearance for years because of his history, but he was later ruled out for two reasons. One, they never could find any actual evidence to link him to Jillian or the area. And two, they found another suspect, David Carl Phelps. At the time Jillian disappeared, David Phelps was 23 years old and also lived in the McNeely apartment complex her dad lived in. David had been previously accused of sexually abusing a child when he was a teenager. It was also noted that in the past, he would make inappropriate advances toward other children and take them to the Wood Duck Wildlife Area, which, remember, is where Jillian's shirt, jeans, underwear, shoes, and keys were all later discovered. However, further testing performed by the FBI determined that no blood or semen could be found on these items. David was questioned by police in the very beginning after Jill disappeared but they had no evidence that he was involved and could not make an arrest at the time. He had been living with another man by the name of Kermit Baumgardner, who had previously been arrested and convicted of sexual assault. Police questioned Kermit as well, and he denied having anything to do with Jillian's disappearance. The private investigator Joyce hired right after Jillian disappeared was named Roy Stevens and he thought David was involved and pursued this lead even harder than the police did. It was reported that Roy and another person that worked with him picked up David and drove him to the Wood Duck Wildlife Management Area where Jillian's belongings had been found. Roy then gave David a shovel and told him to show him where he had buried Jillian's body. David repeatedly told Roy he didn't have anything to do with her disappearance, and the other person with Roy later recalled that Roy then shot his gun in the air when David continued to claim he was innocent. Roy later stated that he did not intend the gunshot to be a threat to David directly, but that it had been fired out of pure frustration. After firing this shot, David led them to a nearby cemetery where he began digging in one spot before finally stopping and confessing that he had participated in Jillian's disappearance. 
So, his story goes that he was woken up by Kermit on the morning that Jillian disappeared. And Kermit told him he had a child in his car and that they were going for a ride. David then claims he held Jillian down while Kermit molested her, but that Jillian became so upset that it scared him, so he drove back to Norfolk alone and left Jillian and Kermit there by themselves. So he's claiming that Jillian was still alive when he left. Roy recorded David's confession and then brought him to a motel located in Norfolk where David then agreed to be interviewed by an Omaha television crew on January 4, 1989. He repeated the same confession he had made to Roy into the camera, but the reporter he had spoken to later stated that she believed David had not been telling the truth and had just been making up things as he went through the story. So after the TV confession, he went with police willingly to the police station, and after arriving there, he received and waived his Miranda rights. He then gave investigators a full confession of all the events he had spoken about on the TV. David later went on to recant these confessions completely, stating that he had been coerced and only confessed out of fear. Kermit was questioned once again, and he continued to maintain his innocence, claiming that David was trying to cover up what he had done by himself. Kermit also claimed to have an alibi for the day Jillian disappeared. I'm not exactly sure what this supposed alibi was, but it obviously was not airtight because he is still considered a possible suspect in Jillian's case. Joyce was convinced that David was responsible for Jillian's abduction and murder, but everything they had was circumstantial. Plus, he was basically threatened for his confession and is now recanting it, so police just didn't have enough to arrest him. And remember, even the test on Jillian's clothing revealed no usable evidence, and Joyce was furious that David was going to be out in the world free to hurt other children. So this was when Joyce decided she had to take matters into her own hands. Under Nebraska law, if a petition was signed by at least 10% of county voters participating in the most recent election, then authorities were required to convene a grand jury to investigate the crime. So that's just what Joyce set out to do. From December of 1989 to February of 1990, Joyce, along with dozens of volunteers, collected hundreds of signatures anywhere they could get them. They went to a local mall and set up a table with a banner that said, quote, Jill Cutshaw needs a grand jury, end quote. Volunteers even walked through blizzards and snowstorms to collect signatures door to door. They ended up collecting a total of 1,471 signatures from registered voters and an additional 500 signatures from unregistered voters. The petitions were officially presented to authorities on February 20, 1990, only one day after what would have been Jillian's 12th birthday. Based on the population size, the signatures that were collected were what Joyce needed, and a grand jury was finally called to investigate Jillian's kidnapping case. Joyce called it, quote, My gift to her. I don't have anything extra. The only thing I have is love for my daughter. End quote. A few months later, in June of 1990, 
The jury stated they had enough evidence to charge him, and David Phelps was indicted for kidnapping with intent to defile in Jillian's abduction. He was immediately arrested in Iowa and extradited back to Nebraska to stand trial. David pleaded not guilty and was held on a $100,000 bond while he awaited his trial that was scheduled for November 5, 1990. One of the officers present during one of David's interviews testified in the trial that during the interview, David recalled six prior incidents of sexual contact with young girls dating all the way back to the year 1980. He admitted being sexually attracted to young girls, and the case law file read that he, quote, liked Jillian's blue eyes, the way she could control people, and how she helped others, but he claimed she was too old for him. End quote. David also had another former roommate that testified against him named Lawrence Pennybacker, and the case law file stated, quote, Lawrence Pennybacker, a former roommate of Phelps, testified that he and Phelps had watched a movie on television about a child who had been kidnapped and killed and whose body was never recovered. During the movie, Phelps stated that he wondered what it would be like to kidnap, rape, and kill a child and be able to get away with it. Penny Backer told Phelps that a person had to be sick to think of things like that. And Phelps responded, what's wrong with it? End quote. Kermit Baumgardner was not charged in connection with Jillian, and all the information he gave authorities had remained consistent. He moved to California after Jillian's abduction, but they were able to get him to return to Nebraska to testify against David. The defense's main strategy was trying to undermine the main piece of evidence that was being used against David, his confession. They claimed that he had been coerced into confessing and that he had incorrectly identified the clothing Jillian had been wearing that day. The main argument regarding the clothing was that he said Jillian had been wearing white underwear with little swirls on them, when in fact, the underwear were white but had little ice cream designs on them. They also presented the fact that the private investigator Joyce had hired, Roy Stevens, had previously been in prison for burglary in 1976 and had lied about his criminal record in order to obtain his detective's license. By the time this was presented, Roy had already admitted to lying and had handed in his detective's license in 1999 before the trial had even begun. Roy did go on to continue to work with missing children cases in the region after this came to light. He leads investigations for the Missing Youth Foundation, which is a nonprofit that was founded after Jillian's disappearance. At the time this news article was released, this foundation had already helped find and bring home 17 missing children. It was reported that Roy still keeps a picture of Jillian on his desk and says he will not stop until she is found. David's trial lasted from the months of November 1990 to March of 1991. On March 20, 1991, he was found guilty of first-degree kidnapping with intent to commit sexual molestation against a child. He was sentenced to life in prison on April 26, 1991. Police have never been able to charge him with murder because Jillian's body has never been found. Even after being convicted, David never stopped maintaining that he was innocent and had not been involved in Jillian's abduction in any way. 
On July 20, 2005, he attempted to get an order that would authorize forensic DNA testing be done on some of the items being held as evidence because these tests were not available when the trial initially took place. The evidence he wanted retested included seven postcards that had been sent to various police departments about Jillian's kidnapping. He stated that the testing of these postcards would prove that the saliva used to attach the stamps did not belong to him. He also wanted the clothing that was found in the wooded area retested as well, stating that if any DNA could be found on them, it would also not belong to him. After David submitted this DNA testing request, the District Court for Madison County held a hearing with David via telephone. Lead investigator Steve Hecker broke down how Jillian's clothing was recovered from the wildlife refuge and handled afterwards. He indicated that numerous people had touched the clothing, including investigators, FBI personnel, David's trial counsel, and the jury. Dr. Carrie Bernal from the University of Nebraska Medical Center replied that if an item of evidence had been handled by multiple people, then DNA testing would most likely show mixed DNA profiles or possibly just the profile of the last person who had touched the item. Also, the testing could be affected by storage conditions, the passage of time, and the environmental conditions when the clothing was collected. The court determined that David had satisfied the requirements for obtaining DNA testing, but it concluded that the statute's further conditions for DNA testing had not been met because the handling of the clothing since recovery made it unlikely that the original physical composition of the clothing had been safeguarded for purposes of DNA testing. The court denied David's motion for DNA testing and appointment of counsel, and the case was dismissed. David accused the court of abusing its power under the DNA Testing Act. He believed that the court did not determine that the biological evidence lacked integrity for purposes of DNA testing and the DNA testing would not produce exculpatory evidence. The court ruled that David did not show that DNA testing may be relevant to his claim of wrongful conviction and that the court did not abuse its power by denying his request for an attorney. The conclusion of this request stated, quote, We conclude that Phelps's assignments of error are without merit, and we affirm the judgment of the district court, end quote. In 2012, David tried once again to get his case reviewed because new evidence was found in Jillian's case pointing to another suspect. Earlier that year, 46-year-old John Olson was charged with the 1989 murder of Catherine Beard, also known as Kathy Beard. Kathy was 31 years old when she went missing from Ord, Nebraska on May 31, 1989. She was a part-time waitress at the Someplace Else Tavern, and from what I could find, it seemed that this was a popular hangout spot, so Kathy went there sometimes when she was off. This is where she went on the night she disappeared. She had been seen by multiple witnesses talking to a local man that they identified as John Olson. The manager of the bar called police shortly after closing when they found Kathy's cigarettes and keys still sitting on the bar, but she was nowhere to be found. The former Valley County prosecutor told Buried in the Backyard, which aired on Oxygen, quote, 
John Olson and Kathy Beard did know each other. I think Kathy considered him somewhat of a friend, end quote. When police questioned John, he told them that he had in fact tried to hit on Kathy, but she had turned him down. He then claimed they went outside, talked for a bit before she got into the truck with two men that he didn't know and left with them. Along with John, police identified two more persons of interest named Rex White and Glenn Hall. Witnesses had claimed they had heard the two talking about Kathy right before she disappeared. They were later proven to not be involved, and Kathy's case quickly went cold. And then, on April 26, 1992, her skeletal remains were discovered on a dirt road just outside of Ord. Police went on to find the sweater Kathy was last reported wearing with a hole cut in the stomach buried close by. They collected blood from the sweater and compared it to her mother, proving that the remains did in fact belong to Kathy. Her autopsy showed that she had been killed by blunt and sharp force trauma to the chest, face, and skull. Her bones also showed marks that indicated there were stab wounds in the ribs, the lumbar vertebrae, sacrum, and wrist. These marks indicated that foul play and a violent death had taken place. Once her remains had been found, investigators started going back through the case files and decided to return back to the main witnesses that had last seen Kathy at the tavern, including John Olson. They were surprised to find out that John was actually in jail on charges for sexual assault at this time. He had been accused of grabbing a gas station clerk as she left work and pinning her to the ground. He then apparently lifted her shirt, and rubbed her stomach. Even after all the years that had passed, John still stuck to his story when he was requestioned, and Kathy's case went cold again. And then, almost two decades later in 2010, the Nebraska State Patrol released a deck of playing cards to circulate throughout the prisons. Each of these playing cards features a different unsolved cold case, and for Nebraska, Kathy's case was on the two of spades. Once these cards began to circulate, police received a call from an inmate who recognized Kathy's story. Casey Hurlbert from the Valley County Sheriff's Office told Oxygen, quote, The cellmate was incarcerated in Valley County with John Oldson, end quote. When police began reinvestigating John, they learned that he had been convicted in 2003 for sticking hypodermic needles into the abdomens of his two stepdaughters. Police found this strange because, remember, John had attacked the gas station clerk and had rubbed her stomach, and Kathy's shirt was found with a hole cut out of the stomach area. John's sister also told investigators that John had done a deep clean of his truck the day after Kathy disappeared, and even though all the evidence was circumstantial, the county attorney charged him with murder. He was found guilty of second-degree murder in Kathy's case and sentenced to life in prison. Now, when you look up this case, there is some false information out there. One source stated that a diary belonging to John had surfaced that referenced Kathy and a girl named Jill D. But... I was able to find the actual court documents in the case of State versus Oldson. 
This diary was specifically referred to in these original documents as the Sex Ranch Diary. Based on information from this diary, the defense tried to argue that Kathy had actually been with a couple named Jean and Wetzel Backus when she disappeared. It was known that the Backuses owned 2,300 acres in Garfield County, Nebraska, which is only 40 miles or a 45-minute drive to Ord, Nebraska, where Kathy disappeared from. The defense called the sheriff for Valley County to testify, who stated that he came into physical contact with this diary in March of 2012. After everything discovered in this diary, it is believed that this diary belonged to Jean personally. The sheriff also stated the diary contained information regarding the possible death of a woman by the name of Kathy from Ord, but Kathy was spelled with a K instead of a C. It also indicated that Kathy's death, as well as the deaths of three other girls, had occurred on Bacchus Ranch. The sheriff testified that the names listed were Sharon Bald Eagle, Karen Weeks, and Jill D., all three of which had disappeared. Sharon disappeared in 1984, and Karen and Jill disappeared in 1987. The reference to Jill indicated that the Bacchuses had found Jillian on a trip they took to Fremont, Nebraska, stating she was walking and without any clothing. It also stated they had found Sharon in South Dakota. We know Jillian did go missing from Nebraska and Sharon from South Dakota. The diary continued with references to Kathy as missing from Ord in 1989 and indicated a, quote, local man was being blamed for Kathy's disappearance, end quote. It also described how the writer had run Kathy over with a pickup truck. When questioned, Jean Backus denied writing the diary and allowed investigators to conduct a search of the family property. No human remains or any other evidence was found on the Backus property, and the sheriff stated he believed the diary was a hoax. Just a reminder, Jean and Wetzel Backus were never positively linked to the disappearances of these girls, and another man was later convicted in regards to Sharon Bald Eagle. But I thought it was worth mentioning, since the courts found it relevant enough to include in the court documents regarding the case of Kathy. I was able to find Jean Backus's obituary, and she ended up living to the age of 97 and died on Sunday, March 6, 2022. The obituary stated that Wetzel Backus passed away in September of 1989. Before we move on, I want to share a little about Sharon Bald Eagle and Karen Weeks. Sharon was last seen on September 18, 1984 in Eagle Butte, South Dakota when she was 12 years old. Sharon and her 15-year-old friend Sandy ran away together on September 18, 1984. Witnesses saw the girls hitchhiking together in Casper, Wyoming when they were eventually picked up by a truck driver. This truck driver took both girls to his home in Evansville, Wyoming, fed them, and then offered them both $100 for sex. When both girls refused, he tied them up at gunpoint and beat Sharon before viciously raping Sandy. Sandy was able to escape, find help, and lead the authorities back to the home. However, by the time they arrived, Sharon and the man were both gone. 
Sandy was able to identify her abductor as Royal Russell Long, and he was apprehended a week later in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Sharon was not with him, and he claimed he had no idea where she was. His account of events goes as follows. He said that Sharon and Sandy told him they were 18 and 19 years old, and that Sandy agreed to have sex with him for $100. After the sex act took place, he claimed Sandy demanded $200 from him and threatened to accuse him of rape if he didn't pay her and revealed that her and Sharon were actually 12 and 15 years old. That was when he says a struggle broke out and he threatened them with his gun and tied them up. He said he laid down for a nap and when he woke up, Sandy had escaped. This is when he carried Sharon to his truck and drove her to Cheyenne, then claims he put her in a light-colored truck headed for Dallas, Texas. He claims this is the last time he ever saw her. There was no evidence to support his story, and he pleaded guilty to two counts of kidnapping for the purpose of committing indecent liberties with a minor and was sentenced to two life terms in prison. They couldn't charge him with Sharon's murder because her body was never found. Royal Long is also considered a possible suspect in the disappearances of Deborah Meyer and Carlene Brown, who both vanished from Wyoming in 1974. He is also the prime suspect in the disappearances of Cinda Pallett and Charlotte Kinsey, both of which vanished from the Oklahoma State Fairgrounds in Oklahoma City on September 26, 1981. He was charged with kidnapping and murdering Cinda and Charlotte, but the charges were later dropped due to lack of evidence. Royal Long died of a heart attack in prison in 1993. Sharon's father tried to speak to him before he passed away, but Royal refused to see him. To this day, Sharon has never been found. When it comes to Karen Weeks, there are only a couple short articles that even mention Karen. None of them go into detail other than stating that she was a 28-year-old Indian woman who disappeared from an unknown reservation in South Dakota. I couldn't even find one single picture of her, which makes me so sad, but her story still deserves to be mentioned here regardless. No trace of Karen other than this diary entry has ever been found, and she is still missing today. I know today's episode was filled with a lot of missing and murdered women and children, but the further I went, it didn't feel right not to also share their stories while spreading awareness about Jillian Cutshaw's disappearance. I want to end today's episode by sharing some statements that were made by Jillian's family. Jillian's disappearance deeply affected her entire family. Her brother Jeff was extremely protective of Jillian, and there were times he was taunted by his classmates who would say they knew where Jillian was. The bullying got so bad that it was reported he even went through a period that he contemplated suicide. I've said it once, and I'll say it again, kids can be so freaking cruel. Even though David Phelps is serving life for Jillian's abduction, Investigators have publicly stated they still have no idea what really happened to her or where she is. After Jillian disappeared, Joyce made it her life's mission to find out what happened. Quote, I absolutely have to be able to have her in a place where I can make contact with her. 
Until I can do this, there's a chance she's still alive. She's out there lost, waiting to be found. I can't quit doing this until I can find her and bring her back. End quote. She also later told the Los Angeles Times, quote, I feel that this last chapter is going to be my absolute most difficult. It's a very, very strange feeling to work so hard towards something to know that at the end of it, it's going to bring as much grief and pain as a mother can feel. Once I can put Jillian to rest in my own mind and have a place that I can go and visit her whenever I'm having a difficult day or feel the need to see her, that will help me deal with the fact that I won't have a chance to hold her again, end quote. Jillian was declared legally dead after David was convicted for her kidnapping and a memorial service was held at her grandmother's church a few years later. Sadly, I did find an article from KTIV News that was published on September 15, 2022, that stated Joyce had passed away without ever finding out what happened to her daughter. I want to end with a quote from a drawing Jillian gave to her mother before she disappeared. It said, quote, The world is a great round ball thing that is made by God. It has good things on it and bad things on it. The world is great to me. End quote. Jillian Cutshaw was last seen on August 13, 1987, sitting on her babysitter's front porch in Norfolk, Nebraska, when she was nine years old. She is a Caucasian female with blonde hair and blue eyes. At the time of her disappearance, she was four foot six and weighed around 65 pounds. She was last seen wearing a purple shirt, blue jeans, and white Nike sneakers. Jillian has a two-inch vertical scar on the crown of her head and a horizontal scar on her right upper lip. She goes by the nickname Jill, and her case is classified as a non-family abduction. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Jillian Cutshaw, please contact the Norfolk Police Department at 402-644-8700.